Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter, and it is my pleasure to bring you articles from Time magazine. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We will start with final page from the August 14th issue of Time magazine. This is an interview conducted by Judy Berman with Fran Drescher, the president of the Actors Union on joining the writers' strike, the impact of streaming and AI, and the nanny memes burning up the net. Question. It's hard for some people to reconcile reports of A-list stars commanding tens of millions in salaries with the news of an actor's strike. Why has a union representing such an apparently lucrative profession taken such a dramatic step? Answer. Those big stars, they draw people into the theaters and allow everybody below them to make a living. But most people in this 160,000 member strong union make not enough money to even be eligible for health benefits. Most actors just want to pay rent, put food on the table, and be respected. Those are the people we must strike for. When the opposition says that if you're a background person, we will scan your image with artificial intelligence and pay you for just one day, and then we will own your likeness in perpetuity. Where does that leave the performer? In a statement released on July 17th, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers said that its proposal requires a performer's consent for the creation and use of digital replicas. So that means after that one exposure, you'll never be needed again. Okay, next question. How has the streaming economy affected actors' livelihoods? Answer. Well, let's look at the nanny. That business model was predicated on the longevity of a show that went from network TV into syndication. There was a long tail of revenue upon which residuals were based. As long as there were ad dollars, you would do between 22 and 28 episodes a season between 6 and 10 seasons. With streaming, There is no tale of revenue, no transparency as to how well the show does. The name of the game is subscribers. That reduces the episodes per season to between 6 and 10, and the season to 3 or 4. You can't live on that. Question. You call Disney CEO Bob Iger's characterization of SAG-AFTRA and the WGA's demands as unrealistic, repugnant, and out of touch. What do you make of an executive who stands to make $31 million this year shrugging off the plight of journeyman actors? Answer. I have nothing against capitalism, but when you become intoxicated by the money to the point where you stop feeling compassion for people, it becomes like a sickness. The CEOs on private jets and billionaires' yachts, they are doing bad things to good people.
question. Since your speech launching the strike on July 13th, people on social media have been sharing a still from the episode of The Nanny, where your character says, quote, never, ever, ever cross a picket line, unquote. What has it been like to see this moment rediscovered? Answer, I'm proud. I came up with that strike episode of The Nanny. I'm enjoying the creativity of the people in support of this righteous strike. We stand on the front lines of a whole labor movement that stands behind us. But everybody stands to benefit from our success because everybody is in jeopardy of being replaced by AI or being undercut or underpaid. Question. Have labor issues been at the forefront of your mind throughout your career? Answer. Without question, because I come from a humble beginning. We all get sick, laugh, cry, and want the same things for our children. When people in powerful positions behave poorly, when I look at those people across the negotiating table, I'm thinking, how could you do this to us? Your whole job is to screw us. Question. Do you think AI is purely a job killer, or might there be a fair way for studios to use it? Answer. Consent and compensation must be in the DNA of this new invention. Our livelihood is our likeness. The way we act, the way we speak, the way we gestures, that's what we're selling. And that's what they want to rip off. Well, we're not going to do that. Last question or comment. I guess that's why we need unions in the first place. Answer. Really? I mean, Fed Frederick Douglass said, Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. And who knew better than him? Said Fran Drescher, being interviewed by Judy Berman. We move now to the September 4th issue of Time to the brief section. Headline, Why Trump's Georgia Case May Matter the Most by Philip Elliott. The signs in Georgia were there for months, Back in February, the forewoman of a special grand jury hinted that her advisory panel had recommended criminal charges against not a short list of familiar names in connection to an effort to overturn the results of Georgia's 2020 presidential election. The prosecutor asked a county judge in May to keep the courthouse clear and prepared for any potential violence just in case she moved ahead with a second grand jury seeking an indictment of ex-president Donald Trump. On July 27th, orange barricades encircled the Fulton County Courthouse compound, telegraphing as clearly as possible that the former leader of the free world was about to face a judicial summons, even as he leads the pack of rivals for the Republican Party's nomination in 2024. And, on August 14th, those convinced Trump may have acted illegally in his attempts to set aside his legitimate loss 
in Georgia in 2020, found they were not alone. The Fulton County District Attorney and a grand jury agree. The indictment they handed down includes 13 state charges of racketeering, soliciting a public official to violate their oath, and conspiracies to impersonate a public official, to commit forgery, to falsify writings and statements, and to file false documents. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis's indictment brings the number of criminal cases against Trump to four after he became the first president to ever be criminally indicted earlier this year. He now faces 91 criminal charges in four different jurisdictions and will need to juggle numerous trial dates with the packed 2024 primary calendar. Trump has pleaded not guilty or denied wrongdoing in all of the charges. It's been a busy August. Just two weeks before Willis, Justice Department Special Counsel Jack Smith brought felony charges against Trump for similar alleged attempts to subvert the will of the voters in 2020 and his alleged role in fomenting the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. On August 1st, Smith charged Trump with a conspiracy to defraud the United States, a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of, an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and a conspiracy against voting rights. The charges are severe and may offer catharsis for those seeking accountability for the violence in D.C. that sent scores of career politicals into therapy for the trauma that comes when a federal office building becomes a war zone. But however historic and powerful the Justice Department's case, the Georgia prosecution appears to be the most formidable. The 98-page indictment describes a state fending off the predations of a president. The sweeping charges allege an organized effort to illegally change the vote count and send fake electors to Washington to make Trump the winner in a state instead of Joe Biden. The alleged conduct in the indictment includes a phone call during which Trump asked Georgia's Secretary of State to find him enough votes to win. Harassment of an election worker, an effort to appoint a false slate of electors, and a scheme to access voting machines. Along with Trump, 18 other people will also face charges under Georgia's anti-racketeering law for their alleged roles in the plot, including his former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, along with other allies. And the 41-count indictment suggests there are 30 other unindicted co-conspirators. Crucially, Georgia may be the only case that Trump cannot escape with a self-pardon or payment. Presidential power applies only to federal charges, 
and the other state case in New York doesn't carry any potential jail time. That's why the Georgia case could be the most durable, most threatening, and most important headache facing Trump. As he runs to occupy the Oval Office again, Georgia's indictment may set up a collision course over whether state laws can compel a president to face the music, even if he's busy prosecuting wars, negotiating trade deals, or trying to keep Americans' national security safe. The country has never faced a scenario of determining whether someone in the clink can also have the nuclear codes. This is no longer an academic exercise. Voters, including GOP primary voters, will have to consider that remote possibility. In typical fashion, Trump blew off both election interference indictments with personal screeds against the prosecutors, dubbing Willis a phony fanny. Previous indictments have boosted Trump's fundraising, but there are signs of fatigue. Each indictment day has proved less profitable than the one before, and his rivals for the nomination are growing slightly more bold as they watch the fourth, though almost all of them have publicly attacked the charges. Trump's allies will naturally find a way to brush aside the latest counts, too. The first New York Times-Siena College poll of the 2024 cycle, released in late July before the Smith or Willis indictments, indicated Republicans were indifferent to the allegations against Trump regarding election tampering. Among GOP primary voters, 71% said the base should rally behind Trump as he faces investigations. And 71% also don't think Trump has committed serious crimes. The more cases Trump faces, the more real the potential consequences become. And in Georgia, where courtroom proceedings are routinely televised, reality TV may take on a whole new meaning for the defendant. The next headline, Why did early puberty spike during the pandemic? And this was written by Haley Weiss. Italy noticed first. It was the first country to lock down during the COVID-19 pandemic, and later in 2020, researchers at Florence's Anna Meyer Children's University Hospital were the first to point out a puzzling trend. More young girls than ever before had been showing up at the hospital with clear signs of early-onset puberty. The cases were not unique, but their frequency was. Since early-onset, or precocious, puberty first gained widespread clinical attention in the 1990s, it's become steadily more common worldwide. Defined as the appearance of secondary sex characteristics, such as breasts, pubic hair, and vocal changes, in girls 8 or younger and boys 9 or younger, precocious puberty has been difficulty for researchers to attribute to a single cause. 
but a mysterious pandemic-generated spike in cases has provided experts with a new opportunity to revisit their dominant theories in hopes of an answer. Case studies have now rolled in from clinics around the world, many of which saw at least a two- or three-fold increase in precocious puberty diagnoses after March 2020. In China's Henan province, for example, doctors at 22 facilities saw five times as many cases in 2020 as they did in 2018. There is no conclusive answer about what causes premature development, although research does show that the constellation of factors at play includes stress and trauma, as well as lifestyle habits like poor diet and lack of exercise that are tied to weight gain in children. Pandemic measures saddle children with this exact package of pressures. Precocious puberty is most often diagnosed in girls because puberty in girls is more visible, says Sina Orsdemir, a pediatric endocrinologist at the Loma Linda University Children's Hospital. Growing breasts is often a public experience and developing early can mean a minefield of unwanted attention. Then there's the distress of watching their bodies change, which can be jarring even for those old enough to have received proper context and education. First and second graders, they are not mature enough to handle this type of body change, said Orsdemir. That's a big stress for a young girl. Perhaps, as a result, early puberty has been linked to mood disorders and some behavioral issues. Precocious puberty can also put children at risk years later for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and certain reproductive cancers. Though some cases are easily traceable to genetic or anomalous causes, precocious puberty has most often been linked to obesity. Decades of research have found that childhood body weight is a strong predictor of menarche, or the onset of menstruation. In particular, childhood obesity is a growing problem worldwide, which could explain why precocious puberty has remained on the rise. Still, none of this sufficiently explains the explosion in precocious puberty during COVID-19. The newest wave of research has zeroed in on stress as a key driver. We know from recent data that the psychosocial burden before and after the pandemic is increasing dramatically, says Mohamed Magni, head of the pediatric clinic at the Giannini Gaslini Institute at the University of Genoa in Italy. When he saw the spike in 2020, he says, my first thought was focused on lifestyle changes related to social isolation. In his latest study, Magni and his team identify lifestyle changes as contributing factors that many children faced during the pandemic, such as poor eating habits, decreased movement, impaired sleep, and excess screen time. They found that of patients seen during the first 15 months of the pandemic, 
nearly 90% of them had stopped all physical activity. Because many of these lifestyle changes are also linked to obesity, it's difficult to tell whether they contribute to the onset of puberty by altering weight, stress levels, or both. It's also possible the pandemic simply meant that parents spotted signs of precocious puberty earlier because of being all cooped up with their children. Researchers aren't sure yet whether the increased rate of precocious puberty has continued after the lockdown, but anecdotal evidence from clinics suggests that it has. Orsdemir believes that this is because people, including children, have not returned to their pre-pandemic habits. This seems to be the new normal now. All right, moving on now to the next article in the brief from the world of education. Back to school. The creative ways teachers are using AI. This is written by Olivia Waxman. Peter Pacone, a social studies teacher in San Marino, California, has a new teacher's aide helping him in the classroom this year. He plans to defer to his helper to explain some simpler topics to his class of high schoolers, like the technical aspect of how a cotton gin worked. In order to free up time for him to discuss more analytical concepts, like the effects of the first industrial revolution. His new assistant, chat GPT. What I feel that I don't have to do any longer is cover all the content, Pacone told a group of more than 40 educators in a May Zoom workshop, which he had organized. If artificial intelligence is on the cusp of reshaping entire aspects of society, from healthcare to education to warfare, the realm that leaps first to many minds is education. Asked a question online, ChatGPT will produce an answer that reads like an essay. So students and teachers preparing for a new school year are also grappling with AI's implication for learning, homework, and integrity. Pacone is among many high school teachers already experimenting with chat GPT in the classroom. But the tool is inspiring as much trepidation as it is excitement. Earlier this year, as OpenAI.com, the website of the company that produced chat GPT, became one of the 50 most visited websites in the world, some of the nation's largest school districts, from New York City to Los Angeles, banned its usage in the classroom while they worked to formulate policies around it. Meanwhile, teachers desperate to figure out how to harness the tech for good congregated in Facebook groups like ChatGPT for Teachers, about 300,000 members, and the AI Classroom, about more than 20,000 members. The majority of the teachers are panicked because they see ChatGPT as a cheating tool, a tool for kids to plagiarize, says Rachel Rankin, a high school principal in Newton Falls outside of Youngstown, Ohio. 
But Pacone and a growing group of educators believe it's too late to keep AI out of their classrooms. Randy Whitegarden, president of the American Federation of Teachers, a major teachers union, believes the panic about AI is not unlike the ones caused by the internet and graphing calculators when they were first introduced, arguing that GPT is to English and to writing like the calculator is to math. In this view, there are two options facing teachers. Show their students how to use ChatGPT in a responsible way, or expect the students to abuse it. As teachers wrestle with whether to use AI in their classrooms this year, they're also learning about the pernicious ways that abuse can take place. At another Zoom teacher training workshop that Time observed in July, hosted by Garnet Valley School District in Garnet Valley, Pennsylvania, education consultant A.J. Giuliani ran through various AI apps that students are using to cut corners in class. PhotoMath lets students upload a picture of a math problem and get detailed instructions on how to solve it. Tome can turn notes into a narrative. And Readwise can highlight key parts of PDFs so that students can get through their readings faster. Many of them are just using it to do the work because they're bored, Giuliani said. They're not engaged. They don't care. And we have to own up to that. Many of the more than a dozen teachers Time interviewed for this story argued that the way to get kids to care is to proactively use ChatGPT in the classroom. Some creative ideas are already in effect at Peninsula High School in Gig Harbor, about an hour from Seattle. In Era Rosing's pre-calculus class, a student got ChatGPT to generate a rhyme about victors and trigonometry in the style of Kanye West. While geometry students used the program to write raps about mathematical proofs, which they performed in a classroom competition. In Kara Peloetti's English language arts class, she allowed students reading Shakespeare's Othello to use ChatGPT to translate minds into modern English to help them understand the text so that they could spend class time discussing the plot and the themes. ChatGPT doesn't always get things right, but teachers are finding that provides its own way to engage students. Some are having students fact-checked essays generated by the program, hoping to simultaneously test students' knowledge of the topic and show them the problems with relying on AI to do nuanced work. In the Detroit area, Sarah Millard, a ninth grade honors English teacher, had students critique a chat GPT generated essay on Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. My students have never been so engaged in writing, Millard says. They wanted to beat the computer and were tearing apart the AI-generated essay.
Teachers are even finding GPT is a time saver for their own homework. Larry Ferlazzo, who teaches English, social studies, and international baccalaureate classes in Sacramento, has had AI help college recommendation letters for some of his students. He says it did the task 10 times better than he would have done. While many educators seem to agree that an outright ban on chat GPT in the classroom is not the answer, they differ on how much it will change schools. Some think it will be a revolution. There's a tidal wave coming for education, says Dan Fitzpatrick, an author and keynote speaker on AI in education and administration, and as administrator of the AI Classroom Facebook group. Our schools could really find themselves irrelevant in the next few months to a few years. Others believe that it may become a useful tool, but the basics of schooling won't change. I have lived through probably nine hype cycles of AI and education where visionaries proclaim that this is the big breakthrough. And then it isn't, said Chris Deedy, a senior research fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, who is an expert on the history of educational technologies. Generative AI is certainly not, in my opinion, some kind of enormous breakthrough that is going to transform education. There are real concerns about seeding too much instruction to the program. Weingarten tells of the teachers' union and others fear that it will promote educational inequities, further dividing classrooms into students whose families have the resources to afford the high-speed internet connection that eases access to ChatGP2, and students whose families do not. There are also worries about biases in the data that AI uses to craft its answers to users' prompts. And it will be no small challenge for teachers to figure out how to use the technology to develop students' critical thinking skills without sacrificing the meaningful connections that can be the product of human-to-human teaching. When it comes to getting knowledge to stick, there may be no substitute for human relationships. I've been to former students' weddings and baby showers and funerals of their parents, says Millard, the high school English teacher in Michigan. I have hugged my students. I have high-fived my students. I have cried with my students. A computer will never do that. Ever. Ever. We move now to an article from the World of Health. Headline, Five Ways to Strengthen a Friendship. This is by Angela Haupt. It might sound obvious, in the midst of a loneliness crisis, that having friends matters. But many of us underestimate the very real impact our friendships can have on our life, says Marissa Franco, a psychologist and author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. 
connection is the most important factor predicting our health, both physical and mental. A growing body of research supports that point. Healthy, stable friendships can protect against depression and anxiety, increase life satisfaction, extend longevity, and improve health metrics like blood pressure and body mass index. Those who don't have strong social connections, meanwhile, have an elevated risk of heart disease and stroke, type 2 diabetes, addiction, and dementia. While many people assume it's the number of friends that counts, research indicates that quality is more important, and having even a small selection of close friends is a stronger predictor of happiness than having lots of casual connections. Yet, often people who feel disconnected focus on making new friends instead of nurturing existing connections. There can be this feeling, I need to look elsewhere, I need to start a whole new circle of friends, says Miriam Kermayer, a clinical psychologist who studies the science of friendship. For many people, it's helpful to think about the friendships we already have in our lives. Even if they feel a little stale, there are always ways we can revive them. So, Time asked experts to share their favorite ways to strengthen friendships and breathe new life into old bonds. Way number one, consistently invest time. Making time for the people we care about and having shared experiences plays an essential role in deepening friendships. Research suggests that it takes about 50 hours of time together to transform from an acquaintance to casual friend, 90 hours to become regular friends, and more than 200 hours to solidify a best friendship. If you find you're continually dropping the ball on putting in time and effort with your friends, add a section for connection to your daily to-do list advises Laura Tremaine, the author of the book, The Life Council, 10 Friends Every Woman Needs. Way number two, add more positivity. One way to grow any relationship is to foster positivity, says Shasta Nelson, author of books including Friendships Don't Just Happen, it's not always about saying positive things, she clarifies. If you're in a bad mood, be open about how you're feeling and give your friends permission to feel differently while expressing curiosity about what's new in their lives. Method number three, get vulnerable. Another key to cultivating stronger friendships is allowing yourself to be vulnerable. Start by sharing small opinions, like what you thought about your book club's latest choice. Dive even deeper by telling your friends what you're currently struggling with and what scares you. When you're vulnerable, we feel like we are burdening people, Franco says. But being vulnerable conveys that we like them and we trust them. And fundamentally, 
that brings people closer together. Method number four, mix in some novelty. It might be time to inject a shot of new energy into your most familiar friendships. That goes for both conversations and activities. We tend to talk about the same topics over and over and meet at the same places at the same times. Carve out moments of conversation where you can go off script, Kilmayer says, and brainstorm new adventures you can embark on together, like traveling to a bucket list destination or even joining a pickleball team. And the last method, show up for the important moments. Every friendship will inevitably arrive at what Franco describes as diagnostic moments, the highs and lows in life that disproportionately affect how we label our relationships. Was your friend there when you got a promotion? Or were diagnosed with something scary? Or went through a divorce? The answer plays a large role in determining how much we will value that friendship. We move on now to the section titled The View. This is from the World of Health. Headline, The Parent Trap by Jenny Anderson, who is a journalist and a podcaster currently working on a book about the science of motivating teens. American teens are having a hard time. High school students reporting chronic feelings of sadness and hopelessness rose from one in five to one in three from 2008 to 2019, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. By the temp pandemic fall of 2021, the feelings were reported by 42% of high school students and almost 60% of girls. The thing is, a lot of parents are in really bad shape too. The attention to the kids makes sense. The CDC's 2021 data showed a quarter of teen girls had made a suicide plan. Social media has been blamed for the rise in mood disorders, as have sleep deprivation, spikes in loneliness, and academic pressure. One of the key ways we can bolster teens' mental health and buffer the vulnerable is healthy, attuned relationships with their parents. The trouble is, that can be problematic too. According to two national surveys completed as the pandemic wound down in December of 2022, about 20% of mothers and 15% of fathers reported anxiety, compared with 18% of teens. About 15% of teens reported depression, alongside 16% of mothers and 10% of fathers. In total, about one-third of teens had a parent suffering from reported anxiety or depression. Our data suggests that we would be just as right to sound the alarm about the state of parents' mental health as about teens' mental health, writes Richard Weisbord, director of the Making Caring Common Project at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, one of the authors of 
caring for the caregivers, the critical link between parent and teen mental health. Depressed and anxious adults who are parents of teens are faced with the double whammy of trying to manage themselves while simultaneously supporting teens. For adolescents, worrying about a parent or caregiver can be destabilizing when life seems rocky enough. Weisbord's data show that depressed teens are about five times as likely as non-depressed teens to have a depressed parent, and that anxious teens are about three times as likely as non-anxious teens to have an anxious parent. About 40% of those surveyed were at least somewhat worried about a parent's mental health. The bottom line, if we want to help teens, we need to help their parents too, D. Depressed and anxious parents can be excellent caregivers. Their own experience can build empathy and give adults language they can use to help teens navigate similar emotional terrain. But research shows that children of parents with untreated depression have higher rates of behavior problems, difficulty coping with stress, and forming healthy relationships, academic problems, and mental illness. If both parents and child are suffering, the two can set each other off. With adults lacking the energy required to focus on their child's struggles, anxious and depressed teens will show their frustration by lashing out at their caregivers. Being attuned to kids' emotional states is a crucial way parents support healthy development. When infants cry and parents attend to them, important stress regulation skills are built. When a child babbles and a parent reacts gleefully, the child learns to keep talking and exploring. Child development specialists call it serve and return. The baby serves up a sound or venture, and the parent returns affection and love, building a bond of trust and helping the infant to self-regulate. The ways we stay connected to our children change as they grow and mature, but the principle remains the same. A child's sense of self grows stronger and matures by being known attended to, and by feeling that they matter, first and foremost, to their parents or caregivers, although the influence of peers clearly grows as they age. The human relationship has the power to relieve stress, promote resilience, and restore a young person's sense of safety, says Pamela Cantor, a child and adolescent psychiatrist who specializes in trauma. Stress releases cortisol to the body and brain, which causes the feeling of flight, fright, or freeze. Having an adult who loves you unconditionally can buffer that. Relationships that are strong and trustful release the hormone oxytocin, and oxytocin can restore a child's sense of safety, Cantor explains. But, 
for a parent who is depressed or anxious. It can be hard to connect with anyone, much less teens, who are Jedi masters at pushing parents' buttons. Providing the emotional support teens need becomes even harder. Depression has two main classes of causes, says Dr. William Beardsley, chairman of children's psychiatry at Boston Children's Hospital. One probably involves genetic vulnerability. Families with a lot of history of depression tend to have more depression. The second is psychosocial adversity, negative life experiences such as poverty or the effects of violence and racism. The single probably largest risk factor for depression, Beardsley says, is having a parent die when you're a child. One of his key takeaways from a longitudinal study of families with diagnosable mental illness was that the children of parents with mood disorders have higher rates of mood disorders themselves. Another takeaway was even in that situation, many of the kids were resilient and doing well. Beardsley pioneered an intervention called Family Talk. In families with depression, the depression shut down the capacity to have caregivers and problem solvers together. He explains, the program involves talking to each party separately, parent and child, and then helping the adult plan a conversation about what depression is, who is getting treatment, how they're going to overcome it, and then actually having the conversation in a family meeting, led by the parents and assisted by the clinician. We found that explaining what was happening and saying that the kids can be normal and happy despite depression and the parents can be very good parents despite depression was very helpful, Beardsley said. Actively being part of the conversation is also powerful for a depressed parent. Wiseboard's report, which cites Beardsley's work, also emphasizes communication. The key, it says, is ensuring that, kid, that teens know adults lashing out or withdrawing love is due to the illness and not the child. It can make a big difference if a parent simply tells a teen, I'm struggling with something right now, and if I seem shut down or irritable, it's not your fault. The report offers other insights for parents, depressed or not. When teens were asked what they needed from adults, the number one answer, 40% of respondents chose it, was for their parents to reach out more to ask us how we're really doing and then to really listen. As one teen said, don't only look at me through the keyhole, open the door. 
Adults also need to recognize that teens are feeling lost. If this sounds trite, it is not. Of teens surveyed, 36% reported little or no purpose or meaning in life, and this absence strongly correlated with depression and anxiety. Adolescence is a period of massive brain reconstruction and identity formation. A key way that identity is formed is through meaning, finding ways to matter in the world. The tsunami of focus on wellness places too much attention on how to make ourselves happy and not enough on how helping others actually makes us happy, which study after study shows makes humans happier. In the media and the public life, beauty and perfection sell, not altruism and kindness. That leaves it to us, the caregivers, to help children find meaning, or at least hope. Cantor cites research from Anna Freud, who studied the effect of World War II on children. Why? did children who stayed with their mothers, enduring years of bombing in the Blitz, fare better than those kids who were evacuated? Somehow, in the middle of the Blitz and London being bombed, a mother would say to a kid, we're going to make it through this. Did they know that? Did they have a crystal ball? No. But they knew that what they needed to do in that moment was to shore up their child's belief that this was solvable. Cantor says, the kids sent away didn't have that kind of assurance. Humans heal, she emphasizes, mentally and physically. They solve things. The human experience is about solving things. And the next area of interest is about climate. Headline, Climate is Everything, by Aaron Baker, Senior Correspondent. One of the enduring legacies of this summer's heat wave is a disease that few people have heard of. First documented in El Salvador's sugarcane workers 21 years ago, chronic kidney disease of non-traditional origin occurs among manual laborers working in high heat conditions. Characterized by a progressive loss of kidney function, CKDNT has already killed tens of thousands. As temperatures increase because of climate change, those numbers will rise, contributing to what is arguably the world's first occupational disease caused by global warming. Like other workplace injuries, CKDNT can be prevented with increased safety standards. Epidemiologist Jason Glazer has no doubt the CKDNT is already present in the United States. Absolutely everywhere we've looked that has Venn diagram of heavy work and high heat with poor labor protections, lo and behold, there it is. But in a dangerous oversight, Public health tracking of the disease in the United States is limited, said Glazer, 
head of the CKDNT advocacy organization called La Isla Network. It's so easy to prevent, he says. Yet with dialysis or kidney donation, your only options. It is so expensive to treat. While the causes are still debated, it appears to be triggered by heat-related kidney injuries, like heat stroke, and is exacerbated by continued exposure and dehydration. Approximately 8 to 10 percent of workers with acute kidney injury from heat will go on to develop CKDNT within 12 months, says Glazer. This is the black lung disease of today's outdoor laborers, and climate change is making it worse. And our last column for today in Health Matters by Jamie Ducharme. I don't know about you, but I have ingrained in my brain the idea that taking 10,000 steps per day is the mark of an active lifestyle, which means it's often pretty depressing to check the step tracker on my phone after an average day of writing while seated at my desk. At least it was depressing until I read the conclusion of a recent research review published in the European Journal of Preventing Cardiology. The authors found that taking just 4,000 steps per day, the equivalent of walking around two miles, is enough to significantly reduce your risk of premature death. And walking as few as 2,500 steps per day may meaningfully reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease, specific causes of death. That's based on their analysis of 17 previously published studies on walking and health, which cumulatively included more than 225,000 adults from multiple countries who were tracked for an average of seven years. The findings are no reason to shorten your daily stroll. Walking more is better, the researchers found. They concluded that each additional thousand steps per day is linked to a roughly 15% lower risk of dying early from any cause, and they did not find evidence of a point at which additional activity stops being helpful. So, if you were already logging 10,000 steps a day, there's no need to stop doing that. But if, like me, you often fall short of that benchmark, you can take comfort in the fact that even relatively small amounts of movement seem to measurably benefit health and longevity. They may sound too good to be true for 10,000 step devotees, but a number of recent studies and the United States Federal Activity Guidelines have reached similar conclusions. Some research has shown that mild forms of movement not typically considered exercise, like housework, can have a meaningful impact on overall well-being, while other studies have argued that there are real benefits to getting even a few minutes of physical activity each day. For exercise, it seems, is a powerful tool for improving health, even in encouragingly small doses. And that will conclude our coverage for today. 
I remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. And materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.